Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. There has been all kinds of commentary from Hamilton City Hall about what the province has done or hasn't done, or there's been criticism, there's been pointed comments. Well, the other day, uh, there were some pointed comments back. The MPP for Flamborough-Glanbrook was holding a rural town hall and uh, took some, well, directed some barbs at some of council's decisions, including the proposed stormwater fees that would affect farmers. Uh, Her name is Donna Skelly, the MPP for Flamborough-Glanbrook, joins me now. Donna, how are you? I'm very well. Thank you for having me on the show. Uh, always glad to have you on here. It is an interesting thing, though, that I, I know you want to talk about the stormwater fees, but this has been, I think, an unusual time because I don't recall, and maybe I'm wrong, but I, I don't know. I don't recall another time when a council was as, as often critical of the province as this council has been. When you were on council, were, was there as much criticism of the provincial government? No, not at all. I think this is unusual, and it's not—it's um, not um, a healthy relationship. If um, you know, I work really well with with the mayor and with other senior levels of government, the representatives, whether they're um, NDP or Liberal at the federal side. And you've seen the relationship between the premier and. Uh, the Prime Minister, it's much better when they get along. We just uh, announced $3.2 billion in additional funding to um, pour into the health care system. I, I, I would prefer a more uh, amiable relationship, but, you know, I think, I think it would be better for all taxpayers, to be very honest with you. But you're right, I've, I've never seen this type of finger-pointing and, and criticism from a municipal government, or at least this, uh, this, this city's municipal government before. Now, that said, uh, they would argue, I'm sure, if I had them all on here, or the ones who are most critical, they would say, yes, but it's deserved because the province has hung us out to dry with its downloading, and we have to be critical because we're not being treated fairly. What would you say to that? They're wrong. Uh, I mean, we can start with, if you would like, we can start with what's happening with the stormwater fee, which is, is what prompted this particular uh, interview this evening. The city is is uh, looking at imposing a stormwater fee on rural residents and farms. Now, these people receive no municipal water services at all. They don't have water coming to them. They don't discharge into the sewer system. And yet the city is looking at imposing this fee. They are blaming, at least I understand, from one of the um, one of the attendees at last week's town hall and a local reporter on site that uh, councillor, for example, councillor Alex Wilson suggested that this had to happen. It had to occur because of regulatory changes that we had imposed on the city. Well, I, I didn't know what he was referring to. I finally dug it up. What he's talking about, I understand, and, and again, I didn't hear him, but I, I, I am um, I understand that what he was referring to were new guidelines that require municipalities to develop and implement a stormwater management plan. How they pay for that is up to them. We, as a government, are also providing $200 million over the next three years. It will be open at the beginning of this very soon, early 2024, for municipalities to cover the costs. So there is no need to go to rural residents and farmers and say, we need... Uh, to cover the cost of simply managing our system. 
um, by having you pay a tax that you didn't pay fee- before. This has uh, been um, a tried, attempted three times before, apparently, by the city of Hamilton, and it has always been voted down. I think it's foolhardy. I don't think anybody who doesn't receive a water bill should have to pay a tax for a bill they don't receive and a service they don't receive. This is costly as well. I mean, the farmers are talking about thousands of dollars. One farm, Beverly Greenhouses, could pay up to $88,000 a year in a stormwater fee. It's, it's, just, it's just not sustainable, and it's not uh, what the city should be looking at implementing. And again, I would, I would suggest that those on city council uh, would say, we have to find ways to raise money, whether it's this or something else, because there are a lot of things the province has left us holding the bag on, and we can't afford it if we don't do these things. Well, they, they say that, and then they turn around and spend and spend and spend. They're spending, or certainly looking at spending, $60 million on an accelerated expanded bike lane program. They have spent thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars hiring um, consultants. They have just hired close to 300 full-time staff. And, and a lot of people can work more efficiently and more effectively virtually. They uh, increased their own personal council budgets twice in 18 months. They still have taxpayers pay for their lunch and the lunches of senior staffers when they're in long committee meetings. And, of course, it's just, it's just a small amount of money, but we have a poet. These are all things that they could look at if they truly were strapped for cash. Our government also has a lot of pressure on us. I mean, I meet with people every day that are coming in and sitting with me and asking for funding, increased in funding, whether it's for autism, whether it's for more a new hospital, the city wants, uh, and that's just HHS, want a new hospital, $2.5 billion. They want millions more to cover increased costs for wages. Universities want more money. Colleges want more money. Municipalities want more money. Organizations want more money. The agricultural sector wants more money. But there's only one taxpayer. Instead of raising taxes, what our government did was we expanded our tax base. We created more manufacturing jobs in Ontario last year than all 50 states combined. And the city of Hamilton, it's tough. But if they wanted to give taxpayers a break, they should be focusing on making the city a more attractive place to do business and attracting more businesses to take the burden off the residential taxpayer. But instead, they raise taxes. But if you were on council still, and I know that's a while ago now, but if you were on council still facing what was coming down the pipe from the province, would you not also be critical of the province? I would be, but I'd be looking to work with them. I mean, we, of course, I, I would be critical of, of all seeing, I'm, I'm critical of the Liberal government, but we have to work with them. But I would also not be supporting some of the expenses that they put forward. And I was critical when I was on council, and I'm telling you, there are efficiencies. And I, I've talked about the uh, ad nauseum, the infamous um, spray pa- uh, splash pad. I mean, we shouldn't be spending seven, $800,000 on a splash pad, but that's what it costs when you try to get anything done in the city of Hamilton. We don't need more full-time staff. We need to look at where we're spending money and start living within our means. Families have to do it. Taxpayers, we're going to see businesses shutter and close their doors because they're not going to be able to pay these municipal taxes. 
And, and I really do believe that. Three weeks ago, the federal government um, stated decisively that the COVID relief program had to be paid back, and it's a 5% interest on that program. Businesses are still recovering from COVID, and they're now faced with a massive tax hike, and the city of Hamilton should be looking at reining in its expenses until people, the economy has recovered and people are in a better situation to pay uh, a higher tax rate. That is Flamborough Glenbrook, MPP, Donna Scali. Donna, thanks for doing this today. Appreciate it. Anytime. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I'm realizing that our plan to play Valentine's music makes segues into introducing guests very awkward. <laughs> you know, although, you know, who knows? Maybe my next guest will appreciate being introduced to the throes of I'm a love machine. Uh, his name is Eric Kam. He is a professor of economics with Toronto Metropolitan University. Eric, how are you today? Scott, if you only knew that I have never in my life been described as a love machine, it probably doesn't surprise you. Until today. And, you well, know. Well, listen, there's a, there's a first for everything. And, you know, you and I do share that TMU bond. So how about just wishing a, a happy Valentine's Day to everybody out there in Radio Land? There you go. Well, listen, especially to those who are struggling, and that's what we're going to be talking about here, because there's new polling out, new numbers out, not polling, new numbers out, that is showing a a huge number, a huge increase in the number of businesses, especially in this country, that are going bankrupt. There, There is, it's clear that there's a whole lot of things going on in our economy that are not overcomable by a whole lot of businesses. No, and it's really a mess right now. And it's a really sad topic to talk about because nobody ever wants to see a business fail. But it's a real confluence of a few things, Scott. And of course, you know, number one, during COVID-19, a lot of businesses were artificially supported by government aid, bank forbearance, and low interest rates. And as an economist, you sort of always knew that that was going to disappear at some point. But I don't think that anybody could have predicted it disappearing so fast and all of these things disappearing together, not the least of which we see interest rates rising at historic speed. So while it's you can never sort of put um, a downturn on any one thing, in this case, I think it's actually fairly simple, which is that input prices the big three, land, labor, and capital, um, the prices of those things, rent, wages, and especially the interest rate, have just gone through the roof. You said and that, so, well, but, Sorry, so, no, I was ahead, just going to say, ahead. so any business that has had to pay rent, pay wages, or pay interest on loans is getting killed, and when profit margins are razor thin, it's very dangerous time, Scott. You said that we all knew that things would change, but do I not recall an interview that Tiff Macklin, the head of the Bank of Canada, gave a f- not that long ago saying interest rates are at a historic low and they're going to stay there? So not everybody thought this was coming down the road. I don't disagree with what you're saying, but and I don't mean to call anybody um, a liar, but let me rephrase Everybody that has no no skin in the game or um, a boss to satisfy or shareholders to satiate knew that this was going to happen. So unfortunately, Mr. Mac, Dr. Macklem has to toe a party line because this has been coming for a while. 
it was really only the depth and speed that we couldn't predict. And so again, I don't want to call anybody out, but he was playing a party line and trying to forego widespread panic, which he was able to do for a while. But as you see, now it's coming home to roost. The reality is businesses require spending on one side and spending is still well below pre-pandemic levels. And then on the supply side, they need some control of their bills and their bills are just through the roof. And then if you want to tie another thing together, just to really feel depressed, all of our macroeconomic indicators in this country, unlike the US, are either flat or trending negative. So when you combine that with the high levels of household debt, high levels of business debt, you're going to say, Eric, where's the good news in that? And unfortunately, Scott, you really have to look deep to find any silver lining. How many do you think, and, and I, I, you won't have a number, but percentage-wise, a huge number, a small number of businesses that are going under right now is the result of the fact that so many businesses had to take on so much debt during the pandemic just to stay afloat then, and when things have not come back to full speed and have not been able to dig themselves out of that debt, that it eventually just caught up with them? Well, I think that that's a, a very large percentage. I think a lot of businesses were on borrowed time and the government gave them borrowed time. And, you know, I don't want to blame the government sitting here. I think I do enough of that on a lot of our outlets. But um, the reality is, is that this is really tied to what happened during CERB. I think we gave a lot of people a lot of um, false hope in a monetary sense. And sadly, I think we gave a lot of businesses a lot of hope in a monetary sense. And when you take away that house of cards and businesses and households have to look at reality, the reality isn't very positive right now. You know, you just made credit remarkably easy, basically for the asking, but that's not the real world. So when you pull fantasy land out from under businesses and households, then they're, they're, they're just left with real numbers. And the real numbers are simple. Spending is super low. The cost of being in business has never been higher. And those two things, when they marry on Valentine's Day, I have to say, are a recipe for disaster. And now you're seeing the disaster, Scott. We often hear people say that the stock market is not the economy. It's, I mean, if you have money in the stocks, uh, that's great, but it's not truly reflective of the on-the-ground economy. Is Are bankruptcies truly reflective of the economy? Absolutely. Now, the stock market is related to the economy. I call it a leading variable. If you watch what happens in the stock market, it can kind of tip off for you what's going to happen in the future. But there's a lot of what I call white noise between stock market activity, which is effectively playing a game of monopoly, and what goes on in the real economy. Bankruptcies are the real economy. Bankruptcies are what happens when individuals and businesses look at both sides of the ledger and just finally come to the decision that we can't do it anymore. And far too many companies are realizing with the costs of staying in business today, subtracted with the government supports that aren't there, subtracted by the consumer spending that isn't there, they have no choice but to shutter themselves. And it's very sad. And the reason I asked that particular question is because according to Oxford Economics, of the G7 countries, Canada has the second highest after France number of bankruptcies ahead of UK, ahead of the average, ahead of Japan, US, Germany, Italy. 
th- that doesn't necessarily, as you mentioned a moment ago about our, our numbers being flat, it doesn't bode well that we are that high in that category then. No, it's terrible. And unfortunately, right now, when, you know, again, bankruptcies are one more macroeconomic indicator. And so if you look at all of the macro indicators, and I don't want to be, again, too repetitive, but they're flat. At best, they're flat. GDP growth is flat. Consumption is negative. Investment right now is negative. If you look at growth rates, we are trending the wrong way. And unfortunately, and if anyone's listening in our federal government, we need a little bit of assistance in that area. But our government seems obsessed with other things than helping consumers and businesses right now, Scott. And as an economist and as a Canadian, that makes me really sad. So how do they help? They, uh, you don't want, I don't think you want them flooding the market again with more CERB money or something because that leads to inflation. Um, what's, the, what's the way to help? We need tax breaks for businesses. Businesses need taxation savings just like people do. And that can be as easy as getting rid of things like the carbon taxes for consumers. That would be a start. And for businesses, more access to credit, more access to loans. Um, no, what happened during CERB, what happened during the pandemic will never happen again. But um, I think far too many businesses are faced with a credit crunch that they cannot um, overcome. And so I think that as the government calls themselves the lender of last resort, well, they may have to actually open up and become the lender of last resort and keep some businesses afloat if they can at least make a case that if they can get through 12 months or 24 months, then they can survive. Not everyone's going to survive, but some of these businesses could if they had a little bit of help. The problem is right now, they've gone from having unlimited help to zero help, and that's untenable. We have 15 seconds. I I do wonder if with all these businesses that are going bankrupt and closing, does that mean that those that are surviving are going to be healthier because there's less competition and they will do better? I don't know. I wish that was the case, or it means that some of these businesses are on borrowed time. Uh, So I don't know how to answer that question. And sadly, we'll only know over time. But I hope that that hypothesis is wrong. Eric Cam from Toronto Metropolitan University. Always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. Grab some flowers for your wife, Scott. Stay healthy. Hey, I'm not a stupid man. I know how, I know which side my bread is buttered on. I know how to do this. You as well. Have Have a great Valentine's Day. Thanks, Eric. We got to take a break. Ben's story of the day. Yeah, well, you know what? We I I've been married long enough to know how this works now. I gave my wife jewelry this morning, by the way. Ring pops. <laughs> I uh, I can't afford real jewelry right now. It's a tough economy, but ring pops do the job. It's amazing how how well when you get her to close her eyes and stick out her finger and you slide a beautiful cherry flavored ring pop on there. <laughs> how how, well, I don't know how well, but we'll see if the locks are changed by the time I get home after the show today. <laughs> You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I was away last week, and so I'm a little behind on this. You may have heard of this story already, but I'll tell you, when I read what we're going to talk about next, when I read this story online, I truly thought at first that it was a joke. And it reminded me a little bit of an old Saturday Night Live skit with uh, Phil Hartman. But then I read more stories and more stories, incredible media, it not incredible, incredible media sources. And it turns out that this looks like it's true. There is a Silicon Valley billionaire, a guy who was an early investor in Facebook and PayPal and others, who is behind what's being called the enhanced games. 
It is a proposed, planned, multi-sport games in which you can take whatever you want. It is apparently, for lack of a better term, the all-steroid Olympics, just like that Phil Hartman sketch in Saturday Night Live 30 years ago. Joining me to talk about this, Bruce Kidd is a former Olympian. You know him for that. You probably also know him because he is a professor emeritus in sport and public policy at the University of Toronto. Bruce, thanks for this. Good evening, Scott. It's great to talk to you. I uh, Great to talk to you as well. Listen, it is... I don't know if you had the same reaction I did when you first heard about this and had to do almost a, a reading double take to see that this was a real thing. Was that your similar response? Well, I had several reactions. One is, like you, I thought it was nuts. Uh, I wonder whether it will ever get off the ground uh, because I can't imagine uh, a municipality or a public body agreeing to be a site for a competition that is so unsafe and creates uh, so many public health issues. On the other hand, it raises an old debate. Uh, we had it in Canada uh, during uh, the Dubbin Commission uh, about uh, whether or not you should have unlimited use uh, of steroids in competitive sport. And of course, uh, because the fantasy of these libertarians is to find a drug that will give us all uh, uh, eternal life. Uh, that fantasy uh, is as old as human history. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, there were a number of amazing uh, films about William Randolph Hearst, who uh, had this fantasy of living forever. Uh, Aldous Huxley wrote novels about it. So it's an old theme. Um, for me, uh, it, uh, it there's no pretense uh, to any of the values of sport. And so uh, I'm, I think that uh, even to bring the World, world Olympics uh, and call the steroid Olympics into it is quite offensive. Um, it's a very unhealthy proposal. Uh, it will, uh, if it ever got off the ground, it would accentuate inequality. It's not about sport. Um, it's nuts. The, the, the argument behind it from the proponents, from the investors is that, um, and this is a quote that the New York post had that he gave to them. Unlike at the Olympics, now the quote, where 44% of Olympians admit to using banned substance, only 1% get caught. So now I don't know if though if 44% is accurate. We know, Bruce, we know that Olympians and other athletes forever, I mean, Ben Johnson, of course, the biggest one that we know of, but we know athletes have used stuff. I don't know what the percentage is. But what about the idea that all this is doing is simply removing the veneer of innocence and not pretending anymore that this stuff isn't going on? Well, uh, do you uh, abandon uh, traffic laws because some people re run red lights uh, <laughs> and stop signs? Uh, I think every athlete in the world wants uh, a level playing field uh, with respect to performance-enhancing drugs. And... Uh, I, I, you know, there, there are difficult ethical issues involved in this discussion. The line between therapy and and performance enhancement in terms of some drugs is very, uh, very thin. Uh, there are are huge issues about um, the the fairness to other competitors. 
there are huge issues about who has accessibility to uh, the, the drugs, but at least the water regime, which uh, to my uh, knowledge is still fully supported uh, by athletes around the world, attempts to create both a healthy regime and also a fair regime for high-performance sport, including the Olympics. And again, let me play devil's advocate for one second here, because when you use the word fair, and this is always the goal in sports, to be fair. I mean, it's the reason we keep coming. I mentioned Ben Johnson again, but it's the reason he was kicked out. It was unfair. And yet at the same time, you know, there was a book that came out um, by a British author after that Ben Johnson race called the, I think it was called the dirtiest race in history that found that six of the eight men who lined up for the final in the sole hundred meters at some point or other in their career had a drug infraction. And so, you know, if it's about fairness, does luring people out of the real Olympics to say, well, if you're on stuff, go and compete in this, does that not make it more fair? Or do we not think that this would lure anybody who's a serious athlete out of those games? Well, uh, if these games go ahead, it will only attract, they will only attract uh, those at the end of their career or those who've already been disqualified unless uh, the amounts of money being offered on a continuous permanent basis are so great that uh, they would change the funding uh, model for, for all of international sport. Um, I don't think these uh, this proposal is going to attract uh, many athletes away from the Olympics. I mean, uh, the water system is imperfect, uh, but it's continuously being uh, strengthened with worldwide discussion uh, so that uh, the, the, the updates to the list are, are sent out on a proposal basis and there's worldwide discussion before they are approved and, and implemented. And at least everybody in the world understands uh, what, what the rules are. Uh, in a wide open, uh, in, a, in a, a wide open, I, I worry about two things. One is uh, if, it, if it's wide open, only um, those who have access to private labs and private experimentation uh, will really be able to make uh, good use of it. The, um, and, and, you know, for a long time, the rumors are that those who, who do, uh, you know, uh, circumvent the protocol are those in very rich uh, areas like Silicon Valley who have access to designer labs. Mm. And everybody else in the world uh, is uh, way up the track because they don't have that kind of access. But I'm also worried about the uh, the the health risks to to athletes if they're under uh, pressure or incentive to try anything to give them a competitive advantage. Uh, see, and, I would uh, Bruce, I would be less concerned with the health risk to the athletes, honestly, because if they're volunteering and they're going to go into this and take whatever, I would be more concerned if the performances that they put on were so much better than what we see in clean athletes that a lot of people on the periphery might say, well, I got to do that then. But who, who will be monitoring their health and who will be monitoring? I mean, will there be ethically approved 
protocols for the use of these drugs. I mean, uh, one race doesn't uh, determine the outcome of, uh, of an experiment. If you look at the, uh, the testing protocols for, for all of the drugs that we know about, they take big samples and they take years, a very careful study. So I think it's a joke to suggest that this is going to be uh, a, a study that will lead to, to knowledge. Um, and I think it's a complete understanding a misunderstanding of the link between an individual's performance in in one event and uh, and and long-term health and well-being. Uh, I I mean I may be wrong about this, but I know of no uh, no research that shows that there is a a proven link between participation in a given sport. Uh, and, uh, and and longevity. I mean, uh, the genetic pool that from which athletes in the five sports that are going to be uh, competed in uh, are drawn from all around the world, and they're huge, huge variations. So it, 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 there's no serious research model to this this proposal. There are tremendous health risks that that I suggest. I would think that the sponsoring municipality would be under a tremendous amount of, of, of public pressure to monitor uh, these experiments the way that uh, municipalities and other governments monitor the combat sports and other sports. I mean, I honestly don't think this would ever get off the ground except in the most libertarian of places. Uh, maybe the Cayman Islands mm. uh, or someplace like that, because uh, the risks involved in this kind of experimentation are so are, are, are so serious that no responsible official would want to take them off, and, uh, take them on. And yet we've seen, again, over the years, athletes who, I don't believe athletes are stupid people, and yet they are willing, clearly many of them over the years have been willing to put things into their body that are untested, that we don't know the long-term impacts of because it gives them the chance to buy. There was a, uh, uh, to, to win. There was a, a survey, I remember, or a, something a number of years ago where athletes, Olympic athletes were asked something about, you know, would you do this, this, or this in order to win a gold medal? And there was a huge percentage that would do literally almost anything to win that. And again, I wonder, I, I believe you're right. Someone like Usain Bolt is not suddenly going to say, oh, let me just put some horse tranquilizers into myself and compete in the enhanced games. But if somebody who's a nobody suddenly is in this thing and puts up a great time, I also wonder if clean athletes will look at that or those teetering on should I or shouldn't I and say, wow, look what I could do if I did some of that stuff. It might yeah. be almost a test lab for what you could achieve well i don't think it's going to be a test lab unless there is a rigorous protocol associated with it uh, which would require the oversight and the responsibility uh, that is very much opposed in this proposal uh, i do agree that there may be desperate athletes willing to try anything in order to win uh, for the glory and to win the prize money. Mm -hmm. And I worry about that. But uh, I am not going to hold out a green light uh, for athletes like that. Uh, I may sound like an old-fashioned moralist, but that's not sport to me.
And I don't mean, by the way, a test lab health-wise. I mean, other athletes could look at this and see the impact that this has. And that's the test, not the health, just the performance side that they may say, oh, that stuff, whatever they're using must really work. I might want to try that. Um, one now more thing. Over the years, there have been proposals uh, by athletes for um, instant scrutiny of the biochemistry of their competitors. Uh, uh, very forward-looking proposals that are still not technologically possible. But I remember during the Dubbin discussions, athletes, uh, one proposal that, that came out of either Hamilton or Toronto was that there be a, a, a you know, a, a magical litmus paper that every athlete on the starting line could could give to any one or more of, of uh, their competitors uh, that would instantly show what they were taking. So there would be at least that kind of knowledge and assurance at the start of the race. Uh, you know, knowledge is really important about this, but in a competitive situation, uh, people will strive for secrecy. So um, is there going to be... Uh, and, and if it's, there's secret, uh, if there's secrecy, how are you going to draw the knowledge from a successful experiment? I mean, if there's to be a health experiment that deals with longevity, surely that should be done in a, a, a controlled way uh, where the results are ultimately uh, tested in peer review and then publicized. None of this, uh, none of this suggests at least up till now, that that kind of uh, care and monitoring and scrutiny and transparency uh, is going to be part of these games. One more thing before I let you go, and I appreciate this discussion. Um, you may remember back in the late 90s when Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa were on that home run race and the world was watching there was a, a famous commercial that uh you know chicks dig the long ball it was all even though there may have been maybe some suspicions it was clearly the thing people love big performances they you know they had people had suspicions about marion jones about florence griffith joiner about ben johnson but yet we all tuned in. We were all fascinated by these things. And I wonder if you believe there would be an audience for this, if people would tune in to watch the all steroid games, if they were to go ahead. I, I regret to say, yes, there would be an audience for them. Uh, people are thrilled to watch other people risk their lives and their health in some of these uh, very dangerous contests, uh, both uh, those that are part of organized sport and those that are way outside the boundaries of organized sport. I guess the question is, does a responsible society allow these kind of experiments that create such risk for the participants just because they can generate an audience and television ratings and advertising and so on. And I think the answer is no. It is, um, it's a wild thing. I mean, I, we don't know yet uh, if this is actually going to happen, but there is certainly, it, it, it seems as though the thought behind it and the discussions are real and whether it actually takes off, who knows? But um, what a what a concept. I As I said, there was this sketch on Saturday Night Live years ago. Phil Hartman was a, 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 a 
power lifter whose arms, you can go back and watch it. It's on YouTube, tries to lift a million pounds and rips both arms right out of the socket because it's so heavy in the all steroid game. And at that time, we laughed at that and said, what a stupid idea. That'll never be done. Well, 2024, here we are. Uh, Bruce Kidd is a former Olympian. He's a professor emeritus in the sport, uh, School of Sport and Public Policy at the University of Toronto. Bruce, thanks so much for doing this. Oh, thanks, Scott. Thanks for your very stimulating questions. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.